Well, good morning to everyone here and good morning to everyone online as well. You know, with so many of us not being able to physically be at our church building, um, I, felt like, I felt like God impressed it on my heart for all of us to remember one of the beautiful things that Jesus has done for us, and it has to do with how we view God's presence on the earth. You see, before Jesus, God's presence and his spirit was concentrated in the temple in Jerusalem. And there was a special room called the Holy of Holies, and there was a dividing veil, a curtain to separate the sacred space. The veil reflected the divide between a holy God and sinful humanity. But when Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, and when he reconciled us to God, that veil was torn. And now all of us collectively, but also individually, we are the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. Through Jesus, we have been made holy. Through Jesus, our bodies are the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. So whether we are here today physically at church or wherever you may be watching online, His Spirit is in us and we can experience him anytime, anywhere. So as we begin our study of God's word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, thank you for the gift of your spirit poured out upon the earth, upon us and within us, Thank you that we don't need to go to a temple or some building to encounter you. You meet us wherever we are. And I pray that this morning, every single person would have an encounter with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to continue our series on prayer, uh, which we started last week, and we're using the book How to Pray by Pete Gregg as a guide for our series. Now in this book, there's a simple acronym uh, that Pete provides to help provide a model for prayer, and the acronym is PRAY. We are to pause before praying, we are to rejoice in prayer, we can ask in our prayers, and finally, we learn to yield to God in our prayers. Last Sunday, Paul talked about pausing in stillness and silence, and that sometimes before we pray, it actually helps to not say anything at all. That in our world filled with busyness and hurry and notifications and noise, it's good for our souls to pause in stillness and in silence in God's presence. And at the end of the message, we were all challenged to spend seven minutes a day to pause in this kind of way. So I wonder, how did this go for you? If we were to do a quick poll, I, I imagine that some of us found it incredibly helpful. Some of us may have found it just okay. And others may have really struggled with it, and, and that's fine too. You see, the goal of the series is not that we learn to follow this specific model of prayer. The goal of this series as a church is that 
we learn to pray. That we learn to pray more regularly, that we learn to enjoy prayer more, that we have more faith as we pray. So rather than seeing this acronym as some kind of prayer model in which, or sorry, as a prayer manual in which we must follow it step by step, I hope all of us see these ideas as uh, helpful models and a resource from which we can learn some important aspects of prayer. Now, our biblical text for this series is actually the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. But even the Lord's Prayer is not a manual for prayer. We don't have to follow it step by step. We're not bound to the structure or the themes or the sequence of the Lord's Prayer. And we know this because Jesus himself says many other prayers in the Bible, and they are vastly different in theme and structure and content. So again, the Lord's Prayer, as we look at it, it's a helpful model for prayer, but it's not meant to be a manual that we must follow um, its sequence. So with that in mind, uh, let's read the text for our series. And uh, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. And this is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, it's interesting that before, te- before Jesus teaches his listeners how to pray, he first tells them how not to pray. Take a look again at what Jesus says at the beginning. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Now, why does Jesus start with how not to pray? Well, evidently, he does it because the people have had bad examples of what prayer actually is. You see, the people had grown up watching their religious leaders pray, And Jesus calls them hypocrites. And Jesus starts his teaching on prayer by saying, don't pray like them. They don't get it. Their way of prayer is not what prayer is actually about. Now, what is Jesus' criticism of the religious leaders? Jesus criticizes them because their motive for praying is to be seen and heard by people. 
The religious leaders want recognition and they want to be seen by others as spiritual. And for those who pray in this way, Jesus says that they have already received their reward in full. Their reward is the praise of men and women. Their reward is public recognition and people thinking that they are spiritual and holy, so they get what they want. But Jesus says we are not to pray in this way. Here is how we should pray. Jesus says, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, understand that Jesus is not condemning praying in public. He's not saying you can only pray in your room. There is a time and a place for public prayer, especially when we gather together as a church. But what Jesus is contrasting is the motive and the heart of prayer. The religious hypocrites prayed because they wanted to be seen and heard by other people. Jesus says we should pray in order to be seen and heard by God. And that is the goal of prayer. That is why we pray, to be seen and heard by God. We don't pray in order to be good Christians. We don't pray because we want to check off our spiritual discipline checklist. We pray in order to be seen and heard by the living God. Now, another bad example of prayer that Jesus wants to correct comes from the prayer example of pagans. And so Jesus says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, pagans were basically non-Jews. There were lots of other faiths and religions and deities in the surrounding culture, and Jesus says, do not keep on babbling like they do in prayer. Another translation of this phrase is, do not heap up empty phrases, as if there's some kind of minimum word count that's needed to get your prayers answered. Jesus says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, the basis of our prayers being heard is not related to workout or saying things repeatedly over and over again like some kind of incantation. The basis of our prayers being heard is because the God of Israel is a loving Father who knows what we need before we even ask. And so this brings us now to the actual words of the Lord's Prayer, and today, uh, we're just going to focus on the first two statements of the prayer. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus begins his prayer by saying, our Father in heaven. Now I'm sure many of you would have heard this before, but this truly would have been a surprise to Jesus' listeners. You see, the Jewish people of that day, they did not address God as Father. 
God was simply too great and too holy, too awesome to be addressed in such a common, familiar way. They would have expected prayer to start off with something more majestic or something more grand. For example, here are some of the well-known prayers in the Old Testament. These are actual prayers. So the prophet Daniel prays, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. King Hezekiah prays, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And finally, Nehemiah prays, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. To hear the prayer your servant is, prayer, is praying before you day and night. So there are some prayers in the Old Testament and Jesus begins with our Father in heaven. Now there's nothing wrong with those prayers in the Old Testament and Jesus doesn't say that that way of praying is incorrect, um, but clearly Jesus is going for something different here. Jesus wants us to pray with the understanding that God is our Father in heaven. In fact, this is one of Jesus' primary goals throughout his entire ministry. Over and over again, Jesus teaches about how God is a loving Father. Now, certainly that's not all that God is. God is certainly great and awesome and holy and mighty in power, but the people of Israel, they already knew that about God. The fear of God and the greatness of God was already ingrained in them. Again, I mentioned earlier that they had the temple and there was the Holy of Holies, and no one could enter it except the great high priest once a year. So the people of Israel, they understood the greatness of God, but what they lacked and what Jesus teaches again and again is that God is a Father in heaven who loves us and cares for us. Later in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is again teaching on prayer, and he says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's again the same theme of Jesus teaching us to see God as a loving Father who listens to our prayers and who gives us good gifts. Now, seeing God as Father would have been challenging for those listening back then. And for some of us, it's still a challenge today. Because some of us didn't have a father growing up. Some of us did have fathers, but not particularly good ones. Some of our fathers have failed us, they have disappointed us, or maybe they just neglected us. But if we want to learn to pray as Jesus 
teaches us to pray. If we want to see God the way that Jesus describes him, we must understand that there is a vast difference between earthly fathers and our heavenly father. Our earthly fathers, at the very least, provided half the genetic material from which we're made. Our heavenly father created us. He made us. It says in Psalm 139 that he knit us together in our mother's womb. Our earthly fathers are mortal. They change over time and they are subject to weakness and death. Our heavenly father is immortal. He is eternal. He is the author of life. Our earthly fathers were all imperfect. They all made mistakes. They have character flaws. They're guilty of sin. But our heavenly father is perfect. He never makes mistakes. He forgives sin. He is good and kind and gracious towards us always. Our earthly fathers are finite beings. They have limited power, limited wisdom, and limited ability to meet our needs. But our heavenly father is infinite. He has unlimited power, unlimited wisdom, and he is able to meet the deepest needs of our hearts and our souls. So let us not confuse the two. And let us not allow any hurts caused by our earthly fathers to rob us of what Jesus teaches us about our heavenly father. Jesus teaches us that when we pray, we are praying to our heavenly father who loves us and cares for us, who knows our needs before we even ask. And in response to our prayers, he gives good gifts to us. So after beginning with our Father in heaven, Jesus continues on the Lord's prayer and he says, hallowed be thy name. And the first question we need to answer is, what does this mean? Many of us have grown up hearing this phrase, but actually, what does it mean? Hallowed is a very strange word that none of us really use. So I did some research on this phrase, and uh, most scholars seem to land that hallowed be thy name, it basically means something along the lines of, may your name be recognized as holy. May your name be held in reverence. May your name be honored. And so when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are asking that God's name be seen and recognized as holy. We're asking that God's name is revered, and we're asking that his name be held in honor. So how does this happen? How is God's name hallowed on the earth? And I think there's many ways that this can happen, but I just want to touch on two ways from Scripture that I see in which we see God's name being hallowed. So the first is this. 
God's name is honored when we as his people represent, represent him well to others. I'll say that again. God's name is honored when we as his people represent him well to others. And this idea goes back thousands of years to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. If God's people lived according to his commands, then they prospered and God's name was honored among the nations. However, when God's people disobeyed God's commands and when they did evil, they caused God's name to be dishonored. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, God confronts and rebukes the people of Israel. God says to them, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you, Israel, have profaned among them. So God's name was profaned and not honored among the nations because of the sinful actions of Israel. And on the flip side, God's name is honored by others when we do what is right and good. So for example, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When we shine as lights in this world, and when others see our good deeds, it brings glory to our Father in heaven. So, what about us here at Granville Chapel? By our deeds and our actions, do we bring glory to our Father in heaven? Are we shining as lights in the world? In your workplace, when there are problems and conflicts and stress, do you shine as a light? Do you display kindness and patience? Are you a peacemaker in your workplace? What about in our schools or in our neighborhoods? If everyone who knew you knew that you were a Christian, would your life and words and actions bring honor to the name of Christ? You know, I work in an interesting work environment right now. Um, it used to be just a regular workplace, but um, two years ago, a Christian nonprofit uh, organization just bought it. And so now we have this really interesting mix of some people who have faith. Um, and others who have no faith or don't have any religion, really. And uh, the transition, it's been really interesting to see uh, the last two years. Um, for example, a year ago, we brought on two chaplains, uh, basically pastors um, at our workplace. And part of me was, was worried um, how the non-Christian staff might react to this and what they might think about having two pastors in the workplace. 
And so I was a little bit worried about that. And then uh, after about a month or two had passed, uh, we had one of our staff meetings. And uh, one of the staff reported that um, there was feedback amongst the other staff. And basically what the feedback was, was that all the people who were working alongside the chaplains, all of them were basically saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had, you know, three or four chaplains and pastors on staff? And uh, I, I was just so encouraged by that because here I was worrying um, what the non-Christian staff might think. Uh, would they be offended? Uh, would they not like them? But instead, the overwhelming feedback was that all of them were so grateful to have them on the team. So these pastors had come into a mixed faith workplace and they were shining as lights. Their good deeds had brought honor to the name of Christ. And I think it's really important that we understand this idea and we take it seriously. In the court of public opinion, in the world of entertainment and media and news, Christians do not have a good reputation. And partly this just has to do with what makes headlines and what makes money. Scandal is more interesting uh, than a story on good deeds by, uh, done by a local church. But I don't think the answer is for Christians to come up with some kind of marketing campaign to try to change the perception of the public. I think the answer is what Jesus tells us to do, which is that we ourselves, each of us individually, are to take on the responsibility to shine as lights. We are to be people of love and kindness and grace. And when others see us living out true Christianity, then our Father in heaven and the name of Christ will be hallowed upon the earth. So that's the first way that God's name is honored is when we represent his name well to others. And I think the second way that God's name is hallowed on the earth is this. God's name is hallowed on earth through the lips and the praises of his people, through us. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah declares. Isaiah says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. I think this is actually the primary way that God's name is hallowed. It's through us, his people declaring his praises. So if God answers a prayer that you have prayed or if he provides for a need that you have or if God is teaching you something new, we should share that with each other. We should encourage one another with what God is doing in our lives and also in our prayers. We can hallow God's name by giving thanks directly to him. Now, personally, I find it hard to just say prayers of thanksgiving. I have a hard time of thinking of what to pray. But I have found it easier to give thanks to God through journaling. 
through writing out my prayers of thanksgiving. I found that journaling gives me more time to think and to reflect. And so maybe if you're like me, if you find just praying thanksgiving hard, you can give journaling a try. You can try writing out your prayers to God. And uh, I've just been doing it for the last four to five months, but it's really helped me so much in my personal devotional time with God. Now, when you look at the scriptures, there's one particular book where the name of God being honored is a central theme, and it's the book of Psalms. In the Psalms, again and again, we're encouraged to exalt God's name, to glorify his name, and to praise his name. And the Psalms are actually songs that were meant to be sung. When I was in university, I took a course on musical theory, and uh, one of the things that I just remember from it was that there's just something about music that affects human beings and our emotions. So for example, long drawn out, low frequency notes they seem to create feelings of dread or fear. Or high frequency notes played in quick succession can create feelings of excitement or anticipation or joy. There's just something about music that connects with our emotions. And I think that this ability that music has is actually a gift from God. We can use the gift of music to help us express our hearts and our emotions and our, and our love for God. And I mentioned already how journaling has been really, been really helping me in my prayer and devotional life. And the, and the second thing that God has encouraged me to use recently in my devotional life is that he's encouraged me to really intentionally incorporate worship music in my devotional times. So especially in the mornings, I find it so helpful to just listen to a worship song to get my heart and emotions in tune with God. And sometimes I actually wake up with a worship song in my head, and it could be a song that I haven't heard or sung in years, actually, and then I just... Google search, you know, the small portion that, that, uh, that I remember, and, uh, and I listen to that in the morning. Again, um, I personally find it hard to just say prayers of thanksgiving, but worship music helps me. It helps me by giving me words to speak. And again, the good gift of music, it helps my emotions and my heart to engage with God. So maybe you might also want to try that this week, is to intentionally try using worship music in your prayer life. Now, when it comes to the prayer, hallowed be thy name, uh, the last thing that I want to address is the question of, what is God's name? For us in our culture, the word God is actually a pretty generic term. I wouldn't even call that word a name per se, it's, it's more of a concept or an idea. And the word God is not exclusive to Christianity. Now in the Old Testament, the name of God is represented by four Hebrew letters with no vowels. 
and uh, it's, it's called the Tetragrammaton by scholars. I don't know why. Uh, but the important thing about this word is that the people of Israel, they so revered and honored this name that they never actually spoke the name of God. So we don't know for sure how to pronounce this name. Now, as best as scholars can tell, uh, they believe the pronunciation is Yahweh. So that was the name of God in the Old Testament. But again, the people of Israel dared not to speak that name. So what did they do? Well, what they did was they created multiple names and multiple titles for God that described his greatness, his power, and the many different aspects of his character. So here's just a few names and titles for God that, is, that we find in the Old Testament. So the people of Israel often called God Elohim. And that, again, is more of a title than a name. It, it means God or gods or spiritual beings. The people of Israel also called God Adonai, which means Lord or Master. They also used the name El Shaddai, which means Mighty God. They also called him El Roi, which means the God who sees. And they also called him El Ropha, which means the God who heals. Now, as Christians, we can certainly use these names and titles in our own worship and prayers. But the New Testament is clear that the name of God, the name that we exalt above all other names, is Jesus. Look what it says in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus is a name above every other name. And just as the people of Israel had many names and many titles for God, we as Christians also have many names and many titles for Jesus as we try our best to encompass all that he is and all that he has done. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we can move to the next slide, please. Uh, one more. Yeah, thank you. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the bread of life, and whoever believes in him will never go hungry. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the great high priest who intercedes and prays on our behalf. Jesus is the light of the world so that we no longer walk in darkness. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, and prince of peace. 
Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is all these things and so much more, and this list doesn't even come close to what the scriptures have to say about him. So I want to close our time together by asking you, who has Jesus been for you? What has he done in your life? For me, Jesus took a broken and lost and confused 15-year-old who was desperate for meaning and purpose in life. And I cried out to him. My prayer was, God, if you're real, then please help me. And the moment that I turned to Jesus, he gave me hope. And Jesus began to teach me and show me who he was and who I was and what life is all about. Because after all, who else can tell us about life other than the author of life? So again, I ask you, who has Jesus been for you? What has he done in your life? This morning, we'll be taking communion together. And in this practice, we remember what Jesus has done for us. And so I'd like to ask uh, the ushers to please come forward. And uh, as you do, you can just start to pass uh, the elements out uh, to, to those here. And if you're at home, also, if you wanna join us, you're welcome to grab a piece of bread or a bagel, whatever you have. And uh, you can get ready as, as we get ready here. And uh, as the ushers come around and, and pass out the communion elements, I'd like us to, I, I want to invite all of us to reflect and to remember who Jesus has been for you and what he's done for you.